Hi, this is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm the editor of the journal Radiology. This is part one of our July 2019 podcast. The goal of these podcasts is to present a brief summary of key research in our field to keep you up to date. Today, we will review four new research papers from the July issue. Before we start on the main topics, I'd like to tell you about one publication for July that is about the RSNA annual meeting. Nearly everyone who listens to these podcasts has attended the RSNA, the world's largest medical meeting held each year the first week of December in Chicago. In the United States, the RSNA meeting starts immediately after our Thanksgiving holiday. We cut the holiday a bit short to travel to this huge and important meeting. The RSNA annual meeting brings three things to mind for me a huge vendor exhibit, outstanding CME lectures, and thousands of scientific presentations. In fact, there are about 4,000 research presentations each year. As a resident, you probably attended these or presented an abstract or poster. If you are now in private practice, you may be more interested in the many education lectures for CME credit. But I can assure you the scientific presentations are still going on, thousands of these. If you have not attended the scientific presentations for a while, I think you should try it again. They are a little harder to understand with new information. The presenters are often fellows or residents and may not be as polished as your education lectures. But the information is new and fresh and cutting edge. I realize that research is not always so practical, and radiologists are amongst the most pragmatic of all physicians in the hospital. Based on other meetings I attend, Radiologists do seem less likely to attend the science presentations. With more than 4,000 abstracts, one reason is simply because you cannot tell which session to attend. More on that later. Now, 4,000 abstracts at the RSNA. What happens to these after the meeting? If you presented a poster during training, you would roll up your poster and perhaps hang it in your radiology department hallway. Many posters are now simply PowerPoint slides electronic pearls that get archived but seem unlikely to be ever be looked at again. But the field of radiology is largely about the accuracy of the tests that we do. There is a concern in the literature that only the best, the most optimistic studies get published. Let's change from diagnostics to therapeutics and consider this more closely. A new drug. One study shows the drug cures 80% of patients with metastatic cancer. Another study of the same drug Now the drug works only 30% of the time. Is the research that publishes that great result, 80% cure, more likely to be published than the other research showing cure only 30% of the time? Possibly. We all like to hear good news. 80% cure rate is surely more exciting to the experts and reviewers than 30% cure rate. If that trend towards publishing good news happens on a large scale, then the published literature would have a bias towards positive studies, that the new drugs work better than they actually do in clinical practice. I spoke of drugs, but what about diagnostic tests? What if only the best numbers about MRI for diagnosing breast cancer were published? Last week, we spoke of clinical guidelines for patients at genetic risk for breast cancer. MRI of the breast is recommended now in our national guidelines. Women who have mutations in the BRCA1 and 2 genes may get an MRI every year. Why? Research in radiology showing remarkable detection rates of MRI for breast cancer. But publication bias towards optimistic research in radiology might be the same as for drugs. Is it possible our radiology research is too optimistic? If a study is done at Mass General or Johns Hopkins, do you get the same results in your clinical practice? 
Let's tie this back to a new article about the RSNA annual meeting. The title is Publication Bias, Association of Diagnostic Accuracy in Radiology Conference Abstracts with Full Text Publication. The first author is Lindsay Sherpak. The senior author is Dr. Matthew McInnes. The authors are from Radiology at the University of Ottawa. Ottawa is in the province of Ontario in Canada. If you fly into Toronto, Ottawa is about 280 miles or 450 kilometers north and east. Keep heading in that same general direction. The next major city is Montreal, only about two hours by car further east. The radiology department in Ottawa has more than 50 staff members, a number of them internationally known. The senior author of this paper, Dr. Matthew McInnes, is a body imaging expert, emphasis on GU imaging, but he also has a unique, special interest in one area of research. Matthew is one of a small group of academics who does research about research. In particular, what is the quality of our research publications in radiology? More importantly, how can they be better? If you published an article in this journal, you probably found it difficult at best and a little painful at worst. I will say this in the best of ways. Matthew is partly responsible because he and others have demanded that you organize and explain your research. Matthew and his colleagues have developed checklists for publication. Did your paper tell us about the sample size, the proportion of men and women and their ages? Did you indicate the type of stats test that you used and so on? So besides being an excellent body radiologist, Dr. McKinnis studies research helps the field by improving the quality of publications. So that's quite unusual and helpful to our field. In this recent paper, Dr. McInnes and colleagues looked at scientific presentations from the RSNA annual meeting. There were about 8,000 abstracts presented over two years, 2011 and 2012, at the RSNA. Dr. McInnes asked the question, if the abstract authors reported high accuracy for the radiology test, was it more likely to be published? If yes, it would indicate bias in our literature, even for this journal. The authors scoured the literature for evidence of a peer-reviewed publication up to five years after the initial RSNA abstract. They identified 400 RSNA presentations that included data about diagnostic accuracy of modalities like CT and MRI. Of 400 abstracts, about 70% were eventually published. 30% were never published. Then the authors compared the sensitivity and specificity of the published papers to the sensitivity and specificity of the papers that never made it, never got published. The results. There was no overall difference in diagnostic performance for the 70% of meeting abstracts that eventually got published versus the 30% that never did. This is great news for the field. No evidence of positive publication bias. Even better news, I think, 70% publication rate for RSNA abstracts about diagnostic performance is excellent. In other disciplines of medicine, only half or less of the abstracts eventually get published. Okay, that's the big picture, but I want to mention one statistical term. I said that Dr. McInnes looked at both sensitivity and specificity of a diagnostic test. Actually, he combined those numbers into one number called the Uden Index. What's this Uden Index thing? You see it in a lot of our papers. The simple way to think of the Uden index is just the mathematical addition of sensitivity and specificity minus one. Let's say MRI has a sensitivity of 90% for breast cancer, 70% specificity. Those are the numbers we got in our first major publication of MRI for breast cancer published in JAMA, more than 800 women. Add the fractions together, 
0.9 plus 0.7 is 1.6. Subtract 1 to get the Uden index. 1.6 minus 1 is 0.6. That's the Uden index. It's a single point on the receiver operating characteristic curve for overall performance used instead of two separate numbers. Well, why use the Uden index? A higher number is related to higher sensitivity and specificity, although you can't tell which. Most of all, when you see Uden index in a paper, it's just a number of convenience. It does not mean much by itself. I think it's overused by our researchers. The authors say they seek to maximize the Uden index in their diagnostic test. In most cases, I write back to them and ask why this odd number is important to them. I'll give you an example where you could care less about the Uden index. You're doing coronary CTA in the emergency department. You are very good at detecting when coronary plaque is present but you're actually not very good at telling if the coronary plaque narrowing is clinically significant. In fact, the problem with coronary CTA is that the positive predictive value is a toss of a coin, 50-50. Positive predictive value is the following. The cardiologist has your report in her hand and the patient is sitting there. Your report says the CTA is positive for clinically significant coronary artery narrowing. 50% positive predictive value means a 50% chance that if the patient has a cardiac cath, the final cath result is also positive. Not so good. New research on coronary CTA therefore cares little about the Uden index. Rather, new CT research needs to demonstrate that better positive predictive value is present compared to the current coronary CTA. Incidentally, that's what CT coronary fractional flow reserve actually does. You probably heard about this, a bit of amazing post-processing, and the positive predictive value of CTA jumps from 50% to 70 or 80%. That degree of improvement is literally a multi-million dollar research result. So now you know what the Uden index is, mathematical addition of sensitivity and specificity expressed as fractions minus one, a useful placeholder, but only helpful if used in a meaningful way. That's it for now. Rest assured, at this year's RSNA, there will again be another 4,000 abstracts, many about trying to improve diagnostic accuracy. I suggest you stop by and listen to a scientific session of interest. If you cannot decide which, send me an email and I'll help you find a useful session. Or, if you prefer, you can hear the editors of Radiology present an overview across all disciplines of the 12 most important publications from the past year. Now, on to our research articles for July. I'm very excited to present the next article to you. It's about breast cancer and mammography, but don't stop listening if you do not do mammo. These results still affect 50% of the population, maybe your spouse, maybe your daughter or sister. And this story is about artificial intelligence and the power of the images that you look at on a daily basis. This research article has almost 8,000 downloads since online release, the most at this point for any article over the past several years. Researchers in many different fields of medicine are taking notice. One headline in the news, this MIT AI predicts breast cancer risk up to five years in advance. The full title of the article, a deep learning mammography-based model for improved breast cancer risk prediction. The first author is Adam Yela from MIT. The senior author is Dr. Regina Barzilay from MIT. The radiologist co-author is known to many of you as a leader in the field. Dr. Connie Lehman at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. So why is Dr. Lehman teaming up with computer scientists at MIT? Her senior partner at MIT, Dr. Barzilay, is a MacArthur Fellow. 
You've heard of this. We call them the Genius Awards from the MacArthur Foundation. In fact, Dr. Barzillet was the only computer scientist named by the MacArthur Foundation in its 2017 awards. Nice that she's working with radiologists. Let's look at her biography. Dr. Regina Barzillet is a computational linguist developing machine learning methods that enable computers to interpret unstructured document content and perform real-world tasks with a promise for significant societal impact. She has used computers to decipher language constants, that is, mapping language to entities and actions in the world, including computer performance. We already know the power of a radiologist working with a physicist. Now let's see what a computer genius and an expert in breast imaging can come up with. Background. Risk models are important for many aspects of medical screening. If you have one or more relatives with cancer, you would like to have an estimate of your own risk for having that cancer. The same would be true if coronary artery disease runs in your family. More than that, governments throughout the world make recommendations for medical screening based on risk models. For example, for breast cancer, if a woman's lifetime risk of breast cancer is 20% or greater, she's recommended to have a breast MRI every year and her insurance plan will cover the cost. And as a woman, it's not so hard to have a lifetime risk at this level. For example, if a white female is age 35 with early onset menarche, no children, and just one first-degree relative with breast cancer, she's made the cut, 20% lifetime risk. This is according to the NCI, or National Cancer Institute, risk tool. We do a similar risk prediction model to identify who should have early colonoscopy for colon cancer, or even who should start statin therapy for coronary artery disease. I have a coronary artery risk calculator on my iPhone. Half of all Americans 50 years or older have a risk score that makes them eligible for statins. The problem with all of these models is they apply to a group of people, but they are inaccurate for an individual person, inaccurate for me, inaccurate for you. Let me give you an example. You run a large health insurance plan covering 10,000 adults. Over the next year, 20 adults in your health plan will die from heart disease. But the risk calculator says 50% of people are eligible for statins. So you give statins to 5,000 of these people at above average risk. The next year, only 16 people die instead of 20. You saved four people out of 20, so 20% fewer people died. But you had to give statins to 5,000 people to do this. You have no idea which four of those 5,000 people really needed the statin. So risk models are inherent in medical treatment, but lack any individual meaning for me or for you. For breast cancer, the risk model often used is called the Tyrer Cusick model. Based on a woman's medical history, this model has 11 different parameters to predict her risk of breast cancer over the next five years. A new version also incorporates BIRAD's breast density. Purpose. The authors compared an artificial intelligence risk model that actually interpreted the mammogram on its own to the standard Tyra Cusick model to predict if breast cancer would occur within five years. The authors had the idea that the mammogram alone contained all of the information necessary to predict a woman's breast cancer risk, just that our human eyes and brain were not capable of doing that calculation. Methods. The authors first trained a deep learning model by using more than 70,000 mammograms. The authors also told the AI which women developed cancer within five years and which did not. The AI was just supposed to somehow match up the risky mammograms with those women who got cancer within five years. Of 70,000 mammograms, about 2,700 eventually had cancer. 
If you did the math the old way, this is called multivariable regression analysis. In regression analysis, one uses those 10 or 11 known risk factors for breast cancer, such as age, weight, prior breast biopsies, and so on. We try to make up a formula, factor A plus factor B plus factor C, etc., all mathematically add up to the outcome, breast cancer within five years. Each of these risk factors has a weighting factor. For example, if the patient has BRCA gene mutation, that counts much more than other factors, such as if the woman had given birth to children. That's the method of the standard Tyrer-Cusick mathematics model that we use now. The AI model does the same thing, adding up a bunch of factors that add up to a probability of breast cancer or not. The difference, when the AI is done creating its formula, we do not know which factors the AI uses. Maybe the AI uses a higher weighting factor for some measure of greater breast density or some other fine structural details. The AI chooses for itself the various combinations of pixels on the image that add up to the breast cancer probability. Results. In one fell swoop, the AI outperformed the very best risk factor model that was based on 30 years of traditional breast cancer research. Remember the AUC value. It is our main measure of diagnostic performance. The AUC value goes from 0 to 1 maximum, 0.5 is by chance. The AI, relying on the mammogram alone, had an AUC of 0.68. The standard risk factor model was 0.62. No need to ask questions about breast cancer history in the family, number of children, nothing even about age. Just have the AI read the mammogram by itself, and it was better than the previous best research on the topic. Unfortunately, a lot of our current risk models work only for white men and white women. The standard risk factor model for breast cancer was terrible for African-American women, 0.45. That's worse than by chance. An AUC of 0.5 is a toss of a coin. For the AI, the risk factor model was 0.69 for African-American women, about the same as for white women. Finally, if the AI was given risk factor information as well as the mammogram, then its performance was even better. And not surprising, the AI performed better than a risk factor model that included breast density as a BIRAD score. Conclusions. Imaging is powerful. We know that. A mammogram contains information for that specific patient, not the average of 10,000 patients. If your cardiac CT shows you have a calcium score of 400, the risk factor models no longer matter. We now know that you as a person, you are going to have the maximum dose statins. That's the concept with this AI paper. The image alone contains more and better personalized information than asking a few simple questions or measuring a few blood chemistry levels. We already knew this to some extent. It's why we have legal notifications about breast density. But before we had AI, we had no way to do the calculations of all the pixels in the mammogram. The authors have shared their computer code to analyze breast cancer risk from a mammogram. It's on their website. Shall we go ahead now, change the medical rules and regulations, throw away 30 years of research on the topic? Yes and no. We have a problem with AI called overfitting. What is overfitting? Overfitting is the AI calculating an exact equation that works precisely for only the 70,000 mammograms used in the study, but not for the mammograms in your hospital. All of the mammograms in this study were digital, using hologic mammography units. But what if you have a GE or a Phillips machine? We do not know if the AI will work. What if your patient population has more individuals of Asian American ethnicity, and so on? 
Testing of AI models outside your own medical institution is necessary. The formal term is external testing rather than internal testing done only at your hospital. The lack of validated external image data is probably the biggest obstacle in our field now that prevents more rapid AI development. Remember that the underlying computer code is free on the web from Google or from other researchers. The difficulty is finding external validated data. There is no solution for lack of publicly available large data sets right now. Each medical center is developing their own data. Sharing of data is still rare. There is little motivation to share data between medical centers and lots of risk. Accidental release of private medical information without permission. Data sharing is probably the single biggest overall challenge in our field. Next up, an article about pelvic imaging. The short title is Physiologic Ovarian Cysts versus Ovarian and Adnexal Pathologic Changes in the Pre-Adolescent and Adolescent Population. The first author is Dr. Erica Schallert, the senior author, Dr. Robert Orth. The paper is from Radiology and Surgery at the Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Background. Pelvic cysts are common. Most experience is with adult women. That adult experience gets extrapolated to children, often without validation. Let's start. What do we know about pelvic cysts in children? Number one, fairly common. From age 10 to 19, incidence has been reported to be about 12%. Number two, what are the cyst types? Most common is a physiologic ovarian cyst that resolves. What about cancer? That seems rare. One earlier report of children who had surgery indicated the incidence is 4% of cystic lesions. Number three, one cyst type not well understood but common, paratubal cyst. What is a paratubal cyst? This is a cyst separate from the ovary in the broad ligament. What's it doing there in children? Complex anatomy, but perhaps interesting. Paratubal cysts are remnants of the paramesonephric or mesonephric ducts. Those are the Wolfian structures intended to become male reproductive anatomy when stimulated by androgens in the embryo. So these are hormonally responsive cysts, Wolfian remnants in girls. They can increase in size. One concept, they have been associated with obesity. Excess obesity can be associated with greater general hormone levels, but paratubal cysts are considered to be non-physiologic. What do I mean by that? Ovarian cysts are physiologic, change with the menstrual cycle and diminish over time. But paratubal cysts will not decrease over time. If they are just simple cysts, what's the concern? The concern is that large paratubal cysts can cause pain and torsion. I'll get back to these later. Just remember paratubal cysts for now. Number four, cysts that are more than about five centimeters in children are at risk for torsion. Surgery may be considered. For adult women, cysts greater than seven centimeters are considered for surgery but in children, the number is about five centimeters. Purpose, determine the natural history of adnexal cysts in children. Methods, five years of radiology records were examined until 2013. Then there were four years of follow-up to see what happened to the cysts. Normal follicles can be up to 2.5 centimeters, so only cystic lesions 2.5 centimeters or more were included. Results, the average age was 15 years. There were about 400 cystic lesions with complete imaging follow-up or surgery. What happened to these cystic lesions? 250 of 400, or 60%, ultimately completely resolved on ultrasound. 
since they resolved these were physiologic ovarian cysts, benign. For the other 40%, these cysts were larger and so had surgical management. The average size was 8 centimeters. At surgery, there were no malignancies. Next question. What was the pathology of the lesions that were larger and had to go to surgery? We discussed paratubal cysts. The most common surgical lesion was a paratubal cyst, about 100 of 160 cases, 60% of the surgical lesions. There were only eight cyst adenomas, about 5% of surgical cases. Half were serous and half mucinous. Conclusion. Of more than 400 cystic lesions with close follow-up in children, no malignancies. The average age was 15 years. This applied to any pelvic cystic lesion more than 2.5 centimeters. Second conclusion. Surgery tended to be done for lesions more than 5 centimeters due to pelvic pain and the potential for torsion. 60% of surgical lesions were paratubal cysts. The ultrasound appearance of a paratubal cyst. Unilocular lesion, simple appearing, no internal echoes. The lesion is separate from the ovary, between the ovary and the uterus. The authors looked at radiologist reports for these lesions. Radiologists in their department gave 18 different names to these lesions, ranging from pelvic inflammatory disease to cystadenoma. And some radiologists named these as ovarian cysts, even though the cyst was clearly separate from the ovary. In summary, this is a good reference paper and something to think about for the adolescent female with a cystic pelvic lesion. Our next topic is neuroimaging. If you are a neuroradiologist, you might say, I told you so, after I explain this article. If you do body imaging or interventional, this is good information for general knowledge and the cocktail party conversation. I was quite amazed when I read this study that the authors could actually perform the study in the first place. I will explain why in a moment. The title, Diffusion Tensor MRI of White Matter of Healthy Full-Term Newborns, Relationship to Neurodevelopmental Outcomes. The first author, Kaiyang Feng, the senior author, Dr. Jai Wei Wu. The study is from radiology at the University of Arkansas. Background. The topic is healthy neurodevelopment. We know that white matter in the brain must develop normally if the young child will be neurologically normal several years later as a teen or an adult. Normal connections in the brain develop in utero and are complete by the time of birth. However, white matter myelination starts only in the third trimester Myelination is not complete until two years of age. If there is a birth injury or an abnormal medical condition at birth, the child may later have deficits in neurodevelopment. Birth injuries could include hypoxia, but also congenital heart disease and early preterm births. What about more normal, healthy children? We also know that young children with above-average ability have greater myelination at one year compared to children of below-average ability but most studies to date have focused on white matter of children who had medical problems at birth. Purpose. Determine if there's a relationship between white matter development measured two weeks after birth and neurodevelopment two years later in healthy newborns. Methods. So how can this study be done to measure white matter at birth? The authors were able to obtain IRB approval to recruit pregnant women to sign up for the study. After the child was born, the mother consented to have her baby have an MRI at an age of two weeks. That alone is quite remarkable. The mother also had IQ testing, lots of questions about lifestyle. And two years later, the child underwent testing to determine their extent of neurodevelopment. The MRI of the newborn infant used diffusion tensor imaging, or DTI. 
You probably recall DTI is the method to map out connections in the brain, the white matter pathways. The more the connections in the intact brain fibers, the higher a number called fractional anisotropy. Let's review this concept briefly. Fractional anisotropy, or FA, is a measure of the diffusion direction of water. In a bucket of water, water diffuses equally in all directions. You can plot the direction of the water diffusion as a sphere. It goes in all directions equally. If diffusion is uniform in all directions, it is assigned an FA value of zero. If instead the water diffuses in only one direction along a fiber tract in the brain, the FA value is given a value of one. The water diffusion is restricted to be in the direction of our neuronal connections. We want our brains to have a higher FA value if our brain connections are intact, closer to one. If the child has a brain injury, disrupted brain connections, the FA value is smaller. In general, a two-week-old infant will have less intact white matter than a two-month-old infant. FA values are higher when there is better developed myelination of the brain. My first thought in doing this experiment in newborns is exposure to noise in the MRI scanner at 1.5 Tesla. In our February 2018 podcast, I discussed temporary hearing loss from 3T MRI. 3T is somewhat noisier than 1.5T, but here are the numbers up to 110 to 115 decibels for 3T MRI. For occupations where workers are exposed to noise, the federal limit is only 105 decibels. However, foam plugs or earmuffs are very effective. They reduce MRI noise by about 20 decibels, down to 90 decibels. That is within the limit for workers exposed to noise. The newborns in this study were provided with ear protection. Results. There were 46 pregnant women who were enrolled 44 infants had an MRI at two weeks of age. 38 of those had tests of neurologic development at two years of age. Remember, all of the infants were considered to be healthy at birth, no complications. Main results. At two weeks of age, better myelination was associated with greater Bailey scores of infant development for cognitive ability, language development, and motor skills. The correlation between MRI fractional anisotropy values and development were independent of family environment and demographics, but were related to gestational age at birth. Conclusions. Number one, MRI was done at two weeks after birth to check on myelin development. Remember, myelin starts to develop in the third week of pregnancy and is complete after about two years. At birth, some normal babies will have better development of myelin than other normal babies. Number two, Healthy white matter and higher fractional anisotropy at birth correlated with better neurodevelopment. Areas of better development were in language skills, cognitive function, and motor skills. Before our last article for today, I'd like to start with a recommendation for a summer book. After you read this book, you'll understand my recommendation. The title is The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer, written by Siddhartha Mukherjee, an oncologist. An overly simplistic summary might be for this book that it's about the war on cancer, a war that began more than 2,000 years ago. In 500 BC, Persian queen Atossa had her Greek slave cut off her cancerous breast. But this Pulitzer Prize-winning author also explains our new era of near-miracle cancer drugs appearing in the news now every month or so. Usually the headline is how much the drug costs, But the most remarkable thing about cancer now is being completely cured in so many more patients. The explanations in the book are clear and lucid. That brings me to my last research article for today. 
components of radiologic progression of disease defined by RESIST 1.1 in patients with metastatic clear cell renal cell carcinoma. The first author is Heidi Coy. The senior author is well known to our field, Dr. Stephen Rahman at UCLA Radiology. Now let me connect the dots between my book recommendation and our research article. In most cancer trials, radiology is used to indicate if the new cancer drug is a success or failure. If you read cases for these cancer trials, you already know you are in the middle of a revolution in cancer therapy. You also know that the tools you use to indicate cancer as better or worse are quite simple. For example, find a tumor mass on CT. Measure the short and long axis diameter of the various tumor nodules. Sum the two diameters. If the number is 20% higher than at baseline, you have determined that the patient has failed on chemotherapy. 20% higher is progression of disease. I reviewed the RESIST criteria for cancer back in February of this year. Let me briefly bring everyone up to date on this. RESIST stands for Response Evaluation Criteria in Solid Tumors. The response categories are as follows. Complete response, disappearance of all target lesions. Partial response, at least 30% decrease in the sum of the diameters of the target lesions. Stable disease, no change. Progression of disease, at least 20% increase in the sum of the diameters of the target lesions. The interpreting radiologist must choose which target lesions to measure. In RESIST 1.1, a maximum of five target lesions are measured and a maximum of two lesions per organ, not too complicated. I measure two METs in the liver, two in the lung, and one node deposit for a total of five, and I'm done. Purpose. Determine if RESIST 1.1 criteria are working to accurately describe disease progression in renal cell cancer. Methods. The authors analyzed a drug trial for a treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. That trial was used to determine if a new drug was better than a previously approved drug. As a radiologist, it does not matter which drugs are being tested. Your only concern is whether the tumor is bigger, smaller, or the same. For completeness, data in this research was taken from the Meteor trial. That trial compared a new drug, cabozantinib, to an old drug, Averilumis, for the treatment of metastatic renal cell cancer. There were 395 patients in the trial. The average age was about 60 years. The authors used the RESIST 1.1 criteria to see if tumors got better or worse. They also looked at so-called non-target disease. What's non-target disease? Well, at baseline with RESIST, I indicated you pick out five tumors, up to two per organ. These tumors should be representative and easy to measure. The patient comes back every three months during the trial, and you remeasure the same target lesions each time. Except for one thing. After three months, perhaps you find new lesions that were not originally there. You only measured five tumors. Maybe tumor number six suddenly grew very large on the follow-up, but the ones you measured did not change. Tumors not measured at baseline are called non-target lesions. The entire philosophy behind RESIST 1.1 is that all of the tumors grow about the same, so only five lesions need to be measured. In the prior RESIST version, radiologists had to measure twice the number of tumors, 10 per patient. Clearly, RESIST 1.1 is easier at five tumors, but does it work? Results. In the Meteor trial, 75% of patients, or about 300 of 400, had progression of disease. The RESIST 1.1 criteria picked up only about one-third of patients who had progression. Non-target lesion progression, or new lesions, accounted for a full two-thirds of disease progression. Even worse, 
patients who were classified as progression due to non-target lesions had worse survival. Conclusion. In February of this past year, Dr. Christiane Kuhl from Aachen, Germany, made a point about RESIST. Her point, RESIST 1.1 did not work and needed revision. Why bother measuring target lesions at baseline? We don't know which lesions will progress at baseline, and too few lesions are now being measured. In Dr. Kuhl's study in this journal, oncologic radiologists only choose the same target lesion at baseline 40% of the time. Too much variation. Now this month, Dr. Kuhl writes an editorial about the findings from UCLA. She writes, How is it possible that the RESIST consortium concluded that progressive disease outside the target lesion should be extremely rare, when, in fact, it's far from infrequent? Dr. Kuhl concludes, The new RESIST criteria seem to reduce radiologist workload by restricting measurement to a few target lesions. But in reality, the radiologist actually needs to measure all tumor deposits, target or not, to find out about progression of disease outside the target lesions. She concludes, Let us as radiologists take the lead and conduct adequately designed prospective clinical studies to investigate the appropriate use of imaging for response assessment. And I suspect that Dr. Kuhl has already started doing just that. Hopefully others, such as Dr. Rahman at UCLA, will join her. Those types of efforts will help determine the success or failure of our next generation of remarkable cancer treatments. That concludes this week's articles. Before I sign off, my radiology chairman, Dr. Tom Grist, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison suggested I mention just a few things. Number one, it's June and no longer minus 26 degrees here. The ice on the lakes has melted. It's perfect summer vacation weather. Those of us who live here have at least three or four months to remember why. Number two, it's biking season. My wife and I were on our e-bikes this weekend after having been convinced by Tom and Jean that e-bikes were really fun. As usual, Tom was certainly right, an early adopter. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blumke, editor for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week.